Welcome to another episode of Questions. My name's Nathan Elam. I'm your host, and I'm here with Pastor Joel today in the studio. How are you doing, sir? Doing great. Glad to be here. All right. Great. Well, I am glad you're here as well, and uh, it's getting a little bit toasty in here. We're in the middle of a heat wave right now in San Diego, and so if you see a sweat, um, don't worry about it. Just know we're sweating for the gospel right now. So, <laughs> uh, All right. So today we have a question in from Vicki, who writes, Pastor Joel... I understand that according to scripture, churches should be viewed as essential. However, does the Bible teach that churches are unique? In other words, is there something particular that occurs in the context of locally gathered churches that does not occur in a Christian's private practice of piety? Yeah, great question, Vicki. Thanks. Um, I, I know what you're getting at. Uh, I've written actually on this subject. Um, the idea is basically that, you know, we say church is essential, but in order to really qualify that statement that something is in fact essential, um, we have to show that that something in question uh, provides some kind of value uh, that we can't find elsewhere. Meaning if Christians can gain all the spiritual value that they need and that they would gain at church, at home in their private practices of piety and their own personal devotions as individuals and with their family, then why go to church? Um, so I think that's the question. I think that's what you're getting at. So uh, that being said, I've written on this subject. So allow me just to read um, some of the things that I've written. This is actually a primer that I've written uh, in relation to the church and COVID-19, um, primarily dealing with church being essential. I've written this. Virtually no one saw coronavirus coming, but we all should have seen the response to coronavirus coming. At the political level, many in our nation have taken their liberty for granted by insisting that the United States of America is merely a symbol of racism and oppression. At the level of Christianity, we have long tolerated a misguided and anemic ecclesiology. That is our doctrine and understanding of the church. Pastors rarely preach on the importance of regular church attendance, much less the importance of formal church membership. Many churches were live streaming their services to consumers all around the world long before social distancing and mass ever came into the equation. COVID-19 merely provided thousands of professing Christians with a justifiable excuse to neglect the church. In other words, it should come as no surprise that the church in America quickly shut its doors and has been reluctant to open them back up. In light of this, it is my view that perhaps a brief primer of sorts is in order. This primer is actually a revision of one of the first sermons that I preached to my congregation in San Diego, California, once our church resumed its gatherings. That was on April 26th that we resumed our gatherings. In this sermon, I addressed three specific subjects that I deeply regret not addressing more thoroughly before COVID-19 came on the scene. Number one, the essential and unique nature of the church, which addresses your question, Vicki. Number two, the biblical criteria for civil disobedience. And number three, God's means for achieving and sustaining unity in the midst of a crisis. It seems that I, along with many other pastors in our nation, was scrambling 
to learn in a matter of days slash weeks what we all should have carefully studied over the course of years slash decades. Therefore, I sincerely pray that this content would serve as a help to local pastors as the members of their congregations seek to think biblically about the church. So, church may be essential, but is it unique? That's the question at hand. So how is church essential? Allow me to be abundantly clear. I firmly believe with every fiber of my being that the church, that is, not merely individual believers themselves, but the gathered assembly of these believers on the Lord's day for the administering of the ordinary means of grace, is absolutely essential. However, this statement is not meant to convey that I believe the gathering of the church is essential under any and all circumstances. For instance, if the police arrived at one of our Sunday gatherings and informed us that there was an active shooter attempting to pick off members of our church with a sniper rifle, God forbid, we would immediately and happily comply, that is, submit to these civil magistrates and their instructions. Allow me to provide another illustration. If the mayor of San Diego announced on a Sunday evening that there was a tsunami of biblical proportions heading straight for the city, and that anyone who remained within the city limits would be wiped out entirely, we would immediately and happily cancel our Lord's Day gathering so that all of our members could divert their efforts toward getting out of harm's way. However, an important detail to recognize in both of these scenarios is that under these circumstances, all other institutions, that is, grocery stores, drive through restaurants, parks, beaches, etc., would also be deemed as non-essential as well. However, in the case of COVID-19, churches have been deemed by the civil authorities as non-essential in many cases and in many states, while other establishments, such as grocery stores, drive through restaurants, parks, etc., have been deemed as essential. Sadly, it is quite possible that one of the reasons there has been so little pushback by the American Evangelical Church in regards to this decision is because many Christians in our nation have held such a low view of the gathered assembly on the Lord's day. To our shame, many Christians in our nation have actually been completely content to miss multiple Sunday gatherings for a whole host of substantially lesser reasons, such as vacation, their children's involvement in sports, travel, work, etc., See, if a person is comfortable with missing an upwards of 10 Lord's Day gatherings in a year for such petty reasons, then certainly they will struggle to understand why pastors such as myself or Pastor John MacArthur or Pastor Doug Wilson would be making such a big deal about missing a few months for a global pandemic. So how is church unique? We've discussed now how church is essential, but how is church Unique. How, how is there something that occurs in the context of the church that cannot be outsourced in our private practices of piety, like you asked, Vicki? See, even if Christians are convinced that the weekly gathering of the saints is essential, they may still remain suspicious of its true necessity. This is due to the fact that although some Christians may be willing to confess that church is essential, they still fail to recognize that the church is unique. In our day, 
there appears to be an alarming amount of Christians who are simply unaware of the fact that what occurs in the gathered assembly of the saints on the Lord's day is categorically distinct from what individual Christians do all week long in their personal practices of piety, aka scripture reading, prayer, fasting, catechizing their children, etc. Therefore, pastors must labor diligently to teach their congregations that when we come together on the Lord's Day, we do not merely experience the heightened benefits of individual Christian practices due to the reality of being surrounded by many other brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather what takes place in the gathered assembly is a spiritual reality which occurs in no other context. According to Scripture, when true churches, that is, Orthodox churches, which faithfully proclaim the gospel message, when true churches gather together on the Lord's day and rightly administer the ordinary means of grace, that is, publicly preaching the word, publicly praying the word, corporately singing the word, and corporately seeing the word in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, when this occurs, Christ himself is present in a particular way. According to Revelation chapter 1, Christ himself begins to walk among the lampstands, as it were. The lampstands are the churches themselves. And the lampstands are lit, if you will, when the church, that is, brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints, gather. When the church is gathered, church comes from the New Testament word, the Greek word ecclesia. It is an assembly, a gathering. And so when the people of God, who are always the church, even when they're scattered Monday through, through Saturday, the people of God always are the church, but the church becomes the church in, a, in an extra sense, in a particular way, the church, which is the people of God, becomes the church in an even greater sense when the people of God assemble, when the people of God gather together. And so the church is the people of God, adopted by the Holy Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the church assembles, the lampstand is lit. And when the lampstand is lit, according to Revelation chapter 1, Christ himself begins to walk among the lampstand. And Christ holds the angels of these churches in his right hand. Now, many theologians and biblical scholars that I would trust throughout Reformed church history would say that the angels represent the gospel ministers, that is, the pastor who has been tasked with the responsibility of faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And as these gospel ministers begin to preach God's word while being held in Christ's right hand, a double-edged sword is extended from the mouth of Christ himself, and it begins to pierce the hearts of men. Again, all of this is in accordance with Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. Some may object and say, well, this is only in relation to the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 1 and 2. However, I would object. I think that those churches are unique, no doubt. But I do believe that the description we're receiving that John the Apostle has as he's taken up to heaven, as he has this, this revelation from Jesus Christ, I believe the description that we're receiving is not, is not particular to those seven churches, but rather it is, it is indicative of all true gospel-preaching 
churches. The church is a lampstand. When it gathers, the lampstand is lit. When the lampstand is lit, Christ himself begins to walk. His presence is there in a particular way. Christ, who is always present by virtue of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, Christ is now present in a particular way as the people of God gather together as the lampstand is lit. And as Christ walks amidst the lampstand, the people of God gathered, assembled, he holds the angel that is the minister of God, the pastor, the preacher in his right hand. And as the pastor opens his mouth to preach the word of God, we see in Revelation 1 that Christ also opens his mouth. And what proceeds from the mouth of Christ, the Son of God, is a sword, a double-edged sword. Well, what biblical language do we have that would be synonymous with a double-edged sword? Well, it's the Word, the Word of God. So when a church gathers, Christ is present. And when the pastor preaches to the gathered church, it is not only the pastor who opens his mouth and begins to proclaim, but Christ himself opens his mouth. And the word of God, the double-edged sword, proceeds from the mouth of Christ and begins to nourish God's people. In addition to this, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 through 20, we find another biblical text which illustrates both the essential and unique nature of the church. See, if he refuses to listen to the two or three witnesses who have confronted him, then tell it to the church, Matthew 18 says. And if he, that is the impenitent church member who is currently under formal church discipline, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, that is, an outsider. No longer regard him as though he were a brother in Christ. Jesus continues in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, whatever the church, whatever you, the subject here is still referring to the church, that is the assembly of the people of God, the local assembly, whatever you, the church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, and you're probably familiar with this verse, Vicki, but it's often misapplied, often taken out of its context. For, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. See, according to Jesus, two or three baptized believers who have made a public and credible profession of faith and have covenanted with one another to fulfilling the Great Commission in unity, which includes following all of Christ's commands and teaching others to do likewise, this constitutes a true church. And when true churches gather in Jesus' name, there is Jesus among them. In other words, Christ, who is always present, with each individual believer by virtue of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, Christ is present, however, in a unique way, only in the context of the gathered church, where two or three are gathered in my name. 
So when the saints physically gather with one another in worship on the Lord's day, they are doing nothing less than coming together to meet with the risen Christ in a particular way, which does not occur anywhere else on earth. And not only are we gathering to meet with Christ, but we are gathering to offer him our worship and to receive from him a word. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks should speak as one who speaks the very oracles of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 4 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Therefore, according to Jesus, if physical bread, a.k.a. grocery stores, have been deemed essential, then spiritual bread, that is, every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, must be deemed as even more essential by the people of God. Now, it is unquestionably true that Christians have been granted the immense privilege of receiving a word from the mouth of God in the context, Monday through Saturday, of their own individual private practices of piety. As you're sitting alone on a Monday morning, reading the scripture, you are receiving a word from God. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. So the objector at this point might say, well, Joel, I'm receiving a word from God. And I can do that in isolation. I can do that while quarantined. I can do that while not attending the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day because I have access to the word of God by virtue of the scripture. However, as we have already seen in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, there is a word that is a particular word, a double-edged sword, no less, which proceeds from the mouth of God, that is the mouth of Christ, who is God, the God-man, when and only when the lampstand, that is the church, is lit, that is gathered. And there, Christ begins to walk amidst the lampstand, amidst the church. Christ, therefore, in other words, is spiritually present with the church in a unique way. See, when Jesus says to Satan in the wilderness that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he does not specify which word he is referring to. Therefore, it is both reasonable and prudent for Christians to assume that both of these words are vital for the sustaining of our souls. Both of these words, meaning the word which we receive in our private study of Scripture, but also the word that proceeds from the mouth of Christ, who is God, that is particular and unique on the Lord's day when the saints gather together. We should assume as Christians, when Jesus says to Satan, when he's tempted in the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. There is a word that proceeds from the mouth of God that we receive in our private practices of piety as we read the scripture as families or, or as individuals in our homes, apart from the gathered assembly of the saints. But there is also 
from Scripture very clearly another word, a particular word, similar and yet distinct, that proceeds from the mouth of God, namely a double-edged sword, out of the mouth of the Son of God, Christ, according to Revelation 1, verse 16 through verse 10 through 16, that only proceeds, it only comes to us, that we're only able to receive in the particular context of the lampstand, that is the church being lit, that is gathered. So in order for Christians to spiritually survive, much less spiritually thrive, we must not only be diligent to study and meditate upon God's word privately or with our families, but we must also humbly and joyfully receive God's word as it is publicly proclaimed in the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day. In fact, I believe a convincing argument can be made that for almost 1,500 years of church history, followers of Christ were only able to receive a word from the mouth of God in the context of the Lord's day gathering. This was due to the fact that the scripture had not yet been translated and copied into the common language of the people. Therefore, when we survey church history, although there were indeed some very dark times where the church immensely suffered by not having the scripture available for private use, it appears as though God has sustained his people through the administering of the ordinary means of grace on the Lord's day in a way which he has not sustained his people through private scripture reading, apart from the gathered assembly. Furthermore, Jesus also says in John chapter 6, verse 27 through 35, do not work for the food that perishes, that is physical food, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus furthermore continues by saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. So if Christ himself is the true bread of life, which all Christians desperately need in order to spiritually live, and Christ promises to be present in a unique way when the church gathers together in his name, to administer the ordinary means of grace, then certainly it is a reasonable and prudent conclusion for Christians to determine that this gathering of the church, of the saints on the Lord's day, must be considered not only essential, but it is essential precisely because it is unique. Christ is present in a particular way. We receive a word from the mouth of God that is unique from the word we receive in our private practices of piety. See, the church is essential precisely because, according to Scripture, the church is unique, meaning something happens when the saints gather together for church that does not happen, at least not in the same way, in any other Christian context. So, I believe that one of the chief reasons that many Christians have capitulated so quickly in regards to the essential nature of the church is because they have not been properly taught by their pastors in regards to the unique nature of the church. If a follower of Christ is not persuaded and convinced by the scripture that something unique occurs in the context of the church that is separate, that is distinct 
from what occurs in their own individual devotions, then how in the world? They may say church is unique, but what they really mean is just spiritual devotions, Bible reading and prayer and singing is is essential, but that can be done in either context, in isolation, in quarantine as an individual or with your family and maybe a few other friends, or it can be done in the church. See, I, I think that's the rub. The rub is that Christians right now are saying, yeah, church is essential. But what they really mean, if we were to kind of lift up the hood, look under the hood and see what, what's actually at work, when they say church is essential, right? No Christian feels comfortable saying that church doesn't matter, that it's not essential at all. But what Christians mean when they say church is essential is they mean that these practices of piety, the, these spiritual disciplines of reading the scriptures, studying the scripture, singing hymns, singing psalms, right? spending time in prayer, worship, adoration. I, what Christians mean when they say church is essential is they mean these spiritual disciplines are essential. But then if you press and ask just one simple follow-up question and say, can these things be done in a private context as well as the church? The vast majority of Christians will say, yes, they can. And therefore, we're going to do that because it doesn't require us to engage in any civil disobedience. It doesn't require us to take any, any health risks. It doesn't, it doesn't require any courage. That's what it comes down to. And I think the reason why a lot of Christians are not exercising the courage that our, our, our nation so desperately needs in this hour is not because they're entirely unwilling. It's not because there's no courage to be found but but who is going to display courage if it's not necessary? Right? That's not even courage. That's just taking an unnecessary risk. That's not courage. If anything, that's just foolishness. And I think many Christians, they would say precisely that. Maybe they would word it a little bit more subtly. They'd be a little bit more gentle, a little bit more careful in their language. But at the end of the day, many Christians don't believe that the church should be gathering at this point, at this time, because... They don't see it as courageous. They see it as foolish. Why? Well, what's the determining factor between courage and foolishness? It's necessity. Do you view this as a necessary risk or an unnecessary risk? Many Christians view the church gathering as an unnecessary risk because they believe that all the spiritual benefits that are gained at church can be gained elsewhere. See, they say churches you is essential, but they have not been taught from the scripture theologically why the church is unique. The church is only essential because the church is unique. Something happens in a, in a real objective sense, in the spiritual realm. There is something in heaven even and on earth that occurs in the spiritual realm when the church gathers that does not occur, not in the same way, in our own individual spiritual disciplines. I think if Christians could get that and be persuaded from the scripture of that, they would then see how church is unique, which would then help them see how church is actually essential, not just these spiritual disciplines, which could be done in the context of the church or in the context of the home, but the church itself is essential and then they would then see the church gathering as a necessary risk, still a risk, 
but a necessary risk, and they could chalk it up to the category of courage rather than foolishness. I think that's the crux of the issue. I hope that's helpful, Vicky. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Pastor Joel. And Vicki, we thank you for your question. If uh, any of our listeners have any other questions, feel free and email us at contact at rightresponseministries.com. We would love to address those on future episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and we'll see you next time. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com slash offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com slash offer. And thank you for your generous support.